There was once a, a major debate, uh, actually not long after, it's recorded not long after Jesus uh, has, has died. And it's, it's the debate around an oven's purity. There had been an oven that had been broken apart and kind of put back together using sand and stuff like that. And the, and the sages, the, the, the rabbis and um, kind of the late Pharisees, um, really wanted to debate sort of, is it kosher? Is the oven kosher now? It was dubbed a, a snake oven because of how much um, was coiled around the topic uh, in terms of um, its implications. And there was a rabbi named Rabbi Eliezer and he maintained that the oven was pure, that it was kosher, that it was good to use, while the rest of the rabbis, the rest of the sages, all disagreed. And to prove his point, Rabbi Eliezer said, if the law is in line with me, if the law is like me, if what I'm saying is true, then make this carob tree prove it. And apparently the carob tree flew across the, the space like the length of a football field. And the rest of the sages were unimpressed, saying the, the Jewish law can't be proved with a tree, with a carob tree. At which point, Eliezer continued, the law is like me, then the stream of water should flow uphill. And the stream of water, wherever it was, did exactly that. It flew uphill, this truly miraculous event. And the sages and rabbis came around and said, the Jewish law can't be verified through water. And so Rabbi Eliezer continued, if the law is like me, may the walls of the study hall prove it. And suddenly the walls began to start caving in on them. And they didn't cave in enough to, to collapse. And so one of the rabbis spoke up, the other rabbis, Rabbi Yehoshua. Uh, and, and he stated that this does not bring proof that the Jewish law through the, doesn't come through the walls of Bet Midrash, the, the Torah study hall. And Rabbi Yehoshua, one of the rabbis, continued. And he exclaimed to the walls, why are you getting involved in a debate with the sages? And with the rabbi still unpersuaded, Rabbi Eliezer called to heaven itself to prove his opinion correct. And immediately, heaven, voice began to ring out. Why do you argue with Rabbi Eliezer? The law is like him at all times. And to protest, the sages rose up and said, the Torah is not in heaven. And at the end of the story, Elijah, the prophet, kind of shows up in the story and informs the rabbis that God actually laughs joyously that they rejected God's arguments towards them declaring that my children have defeated me. And this is the beginning of um, what's called the, the Talmud, uh, this large collection of oral laws that the rabbis and the sages had put into code. This is actually a picture of just how many books are actually part of the Talmud. Um, and the story uniquely communicates an important thing, that in some ways what it, what it, what it communicates is that God submitted to the authority of the rabbis. That God was speaking, saying, Eliezer is right here, but they didn't believe it. And they were saying, our ruling, our majority rule is what determines what the law actually is. And therefore, even God admitted that their rulings, according to the story, are not only surpass the authority of Moses, but God himself. And from then on, it is believed that God stopped revealing himself to Israel. And the rulings from that point on were only what the rabbis had said, this sort of new Torah, this new oral law. This is how I have a view that there was of the instructions, the traditions of the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and some level the Sadducees, the rabbis, and, and all, the, all the oral traditions, the traditions of the elders, as would be phrased in our text today, were handed down. Because you see, at some point, there has to be an answer to the question of like, how, what does God actually require in some of the, his instructions? 
So when he says, do not work the seventh day, well, what is work? Like literally, come up with a definition for me. What's work? Yeah, labor. That's, that's a good word. So does that mean like if I need to like transport my kids somewhere or take them to a doctor, is that work that day? If my kid needs a doctor that day, is that work, is that work for him? Right? There's a lot of complications of how to actually define what is work and what is allowed and what isn't. If I have to, if my house has a hole in the roof and I need to fix the hole because the rain's coming, is that work that day? It's great questions. And, and out of a desire to be obedient, they, they come up with answers to this. And coming out of captivity, there was a, a renewed interest in Israel's history. as sort of like Second Temple Judaism arose. There was a renewed interest in not everybody in Israel, but a crowd that really sought to go, okay, we don't want to end up in captivity again. We, we know part of the problem is that we just didn't know what God desired or required of us. And so they sought to, to study, to learn, to know the best way to be obedient. And out of good devotion, it started there. Now, at some point... They, they knew sort of the rules, and they wanted to make sure they obeyed them enough that they kept creating the rules, like fences around those rules. They wanted to be God's kingdom of priests, as Exodus 19 calls them. And in so doing, they even started taking some of the laws that were for the priests and even putting them upon the people, uh, even though God didn't do that himself. And this living out, this way of obeying the Torah is called halakha. It's, it's literally called, it's the word for the way. This, 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 um, the walk of the Torah, picture of obedience. And so this is the backdrop. This is sort of the, the cultural understanding of what is going on that Jesus actually is really interacting with more than anything else as he encounters these Pharisees. And so we see a tradition of men versus some of the commands of God right from the get-go. Because then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. So they're coming up. He's gained some notoriety that maybe they were at a meeting down there. Who who knows what the context is. Um, But they're coming up from Jerusalem to have this talk, it seems like, with Jesus. Instead, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. So tradition of the elders, is that Torah? Right? It's very clearly Matthew going, and, and, and Jesus' words going, no, this is, or, or their words saying, this is our tradition. Basically, we decided we are supposed to wash our hands. Why are your disciples not following our traditions about that? That's essentially what they're saying. Now, hear me, what Jesus is doing is quite provocative. When there's a way that everyone understands behavior to work, and there's a crowd that's choosing not to behave that way, it tends to stir some controversy, right? If there are women in a predominantly Muslim country who decide not to wear a burqa, that's going to stir the cultural norms. Or if people kneel during a national anthem, it's going to stir some cultural norms. Or perhaps women wearing pants in the mid-1800s in America, that's going to stir cultural norms. And there's going to be a large crowd that says, that's not how we do things. Jesus doesn't even answer them. I don't know if Jesus sometimes washed his hands, sometimes didn't. I don't know if he sometimes like, just wanted to provoke uh, for the sake of provoking. But he simply asks them a question in response. He says, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father and mother, what you have gained from me is called, uh, given to God, he need not honor his father and mother. 
It should be packaged together. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Now, this is really the challenge I think Jesus is provo- uh, provoking here. And he's using their own rulings against them. Now, what they had ruled is that there's this word called Corbin. It's like money that's dedicated or set aside to God. It's a unique practice um, and common in Jesus' day. And it kind of functioned as a bit of like an escrow account to God. So you would set it aside, but it would still be yours. It wouldn't be money dedicated, like I'm giving all my money away to the temple, therefore I don't have any. It is, hey, this, this money over here, or this property, or this goods, whatever it is, I've set aside to God. Now, sometime in my future, if I should, by wisdom, actually need that money, then I can take it actually back, but it is set aside. I shouldn't be touching it necessarily. And the problem is they would use this sort of instruction, this sort of dedicated money instruction, as sort of like this untouchable account where they can then shirk other Torah expectations or instructions to them, such as honor your father and mother. And as I said, in a strongly familiar context, uh, the care for family members, particularly older ones, is extremely, extremely important. Enough that like God, through Isaiah, actually condemns the lack of this in God's people. Um, in one of the most famous sections of Isaiah, where he says, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of a wickedness, uh, to, up, uh, to undo the straps of the, of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Is, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him? And what? And not hide yourself from your own flesh. So if you have your own family who actually need assistance, need care, need help, that you would shirk that responsibility. And God condemns it for that. And Jesus, on a few occasions, will look at the traditions, the the rulings of the rabbis, including some of the the stuff about Sabbath, and point out how they don't actually align with what the Torah actually speaks of. And the area that Jesus goes to, because there's all sorts of instructions Jesus could have used, uh, but the area he goes to about this whole um, how to sort of honor the father and mother, uh, which, yes, is is one of the Ten Commandments, but there's, there's further instructions on it is all about sort of interpersonal relationships, how we treat other people. And so he takes an argument that's around sort of individual holiness. Let's wash hands, let's do those sort of things. And Jesus actually moves it to an argument that where the people, the the leaders are actually failing in terms of their treatment of others. As if he's saying, look, you've got your traditions to get around what is at the heart of Torah itself. Because he goes on to say, and he quotes Isaiah here too, uh, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you. His people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So he goes to the text to engage them with their text. He's like, you guys say things like, praise God. Yet in your hearts, and let's make sure we get this right. Um, we think of some of these words differently than probably an ancient Hebrew probably would. Uh, we think of hearts as emotions, desires, those kind of sort of ideas. But in Hebrew, it's the word leb, which really is just like the full inner self. Uh, it's everything that is sort of inside, which does include emotions and stuff like that, but it's like the inner self. And so there's the outer self that's honoring God, but there's an inner self that's not, that's far from them. 
And so he moves into a conversation around perceived defilement versus what is real defilement. And he says he called the people to him. So perhaps when the religious leaders showed up, the kind of people that Jesus probably has attracted at this point are probably not so keen on the religious leaders and maybe have moved away. Uh, But they're, they're coming back in as Jesus calls them. And he said to them, hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Now, Matthew has already used a word, the the akathartos, which is a word to mean unclean. He's actually used this multiple times already in his gospel. The word here is koinoo, which is a a bit of a different word. It's it's sort of the meaning of making something common. Uh, Perhaps something that was set apart to be holy is in turn sort of made common. Um, And defiled is not a bad word for it, but sometimes it carries with it a heavier meaning than what we might even entail. Now, this is significant because something that, to this day, can be an area of argument between Rabbi Jesus and rabbis in your local synagogue is what, what uh, does make you unholy. And, and there's tons and tons of rules around defilement. Even the hand-washing controversy is still practiced to this day. It's that eating bread, when you're done eating bread, when you're dipping food and fruits and vegetables before any form of worship. So like if you go to the Temple Mount when we were there a couple years ago, there's a hand-washing station that you have to wash your hands as part of your worship at the Temple Mount. That's part of the practice. After touching any body part that's covered or going to the restroom, I am for that. Um, Leaving a cemetery, cutting your nails or hair, donating blood, after a funeral procession, if you're writing down words from the Torah scroll, all of these, still in effect to this day. And ritual cleansing is a big deal. Now hear me. Much of it, I would argue, is done in legitimate devotion. Like, I think sometimes we demonize some of this, this stuff, but there's a desire to not be defiled, a desire to not be unholy, and so they practice these things. And perhaps you're like me, you read it and say, but God, you did literally say, don't eat these things or you'll be unclean, or some of the stuff that we do eat does make us unclean. There are literal laws that speak of those sort of things. So what's the deal? What is Jesus actually getting at in this discourse? Because disciples came to him and said, do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard these things? Which is funny. And and by the way, this is just a sensitive touch point to me. There's a lot of wielding right now of, well, the gospel offends, and whenever we go into the the secular world, the gospel is just going to to be offensive to the world. And hear me, I, I get why. And I think Paul says things like it's a stumbling block, it's foolishness, stuff like that. Here, and constantly in Jesus' ministry, who is the offended party? Yes, the religious conservatives or leaders, um, the religious conservatives or those in power when he gets to Jerusalem, are constantly the people that are offended, not the sinners who don't understand anything or the Gentiles. It's it's a very different uh, understanding sometimes of how we wield the gospel offense. But anyways, he answered... Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. Even better, he's like, just let them go. They are blind guides. And if the blind leave the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. So Jesus already had said parables about wheat wheat and weeds, right? Like he just came off of that. I mean, I know it's like two months for us. But if you're reading Matthew straight through, this is like just a few paragraphs ago. This is the story in a field where the enemy planted things that eventually are going to have to be pulled up. And so very lovely for Jesus to be like, they are that. They are the weeds that the enemy has sown. And Jesus calls them blind as well. It's like they're not able to actually see what is good and true and right. 
And then Peter speaks up, who will continue to have this weird ongoing relationship with clean and unclean into the book of Acts, but we won't necessarily cover that today. I hope I do one day. I've got a a bit of an odd take on that. Verse 16, and he said, are you also still without understanding? I feel like a politician today. I keep doing this. Um, Not going to do it. Um, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled but what goes into the mouth proceeds, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and defiles a person. And so Jesus, this is the paradigm shift, I think, for them. And he even gets a little gross about it, just to be real. Like, you think the rules of holiness and defilement were about food? Like, what is food? Like, you eat it, and it turns into poop. That's all Jesus is saying. Like, it turns into excrement. That's all food is. Like, at the end of the day, that's, that's sort of the outcome of food. But your inner self, that's a whole other ballgame. That's where real defilement comes from. That's what takes something that is holy and actually makes it profane. That's not the food we eat. That's not the main thing here. So what makes sure someone truly defiled then? What is the struggle for the Pharisees? And then verse 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, which um, the phrase there could be evil plotting or evil calculating, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And I think the drive home is, is here. It's as if Jesus is pointing out the problems with how the cleanliness laws are being used and saying, that's not the point. The point is actually people. Because look at the list Jesus throws out. He doesn't say, for out of the heart comes unwashed hands, not wearing your tassels, not mixing fabrics, not doing circumcision on the eighth day, not making graven images. All the things that would be disobedient things for Jesus to clearly point out. He doesn't move there. What does Jesus go to? What what are all of those laws about? What is slander, witness, false witness, theft, sexual morality, adultery, murder, evil calculating, or plotting? What are they about? People. None of those can you do by yourself. They all require directly connect to how we actually treat other people in this process. And I think this is drive home for Jesus. Do you know what defiles someone? It's not the outside coming in. It's not defiled because of something unholy invading your space. It's not an outside-in proposal. This is an inside-out one. And it begins with what's inside of you, and you know how you can know what your inner self is like? Well, what is the law ultimately about? Loving God and doing what? Loving people, right? What was so much of the Sermon on the Mount actually about? People, constantly. It's like how we interact and treat other people. But let's modernize this because we're not first century people dealing with Pharisees necessarily. But in some ways, we still struggle with this as well. Perhaps we come here week to week And we stand and sing wonderful worship songs. And we honor God with our lips. And then we leave here. And this week we talk about our coworker behind their back. Perhaps we go through the motions of church and then at lunchtime treat a server at the restaurant harshly because they messed up our order. Perhaps publicly we like an Instagram post because it's some snappy Christian quote that sounds great and everybody can see our likes and what we appreciate. And later that day we take the same computer and use it to look at pornography. 
perhaps causing damage to both ourselves, our marriage, and caught up in an industry that treats others poorly. Perhaps we begin today with prayer and devotion and yet turn around and lash at our kids later that day. It's always that we are not much different. And perhaps it's even more corporate like the Pharisees, ways that we collectively do some of this work. Perhaps our barriers are stringent statements of faith in churches and perhaps even here that cause those who have questions or doubts to never be able to actually participate in the life of the church. Perhaps there's behavioral stigmas, perhaps like single parenting or unwed pregnancies, that the church has weaponized predominantly against women to ostracize and shame. Perhaps disagreements on scriptures that may not actually be entirely clear, though there's legitimate debates around them that cause rejection of a whole collection of people that disagree with you because they're a bunch of heretics. Perhaps the way the church treats marriage as the highest form of religious piety causing isolation and unbiblical judgment against those who are single, even though Jesus and Paul are both single, and Paul himself praises singleness. Perhaps it's the way we think that we're the only ones to do something right. As a Christian parent, the only school choice is blank. As a Christian consumer, the only way to think about our finances is this. As a Christian citizen, the only way to vote is this way. As a Christian on this planet, the only way to think about trash and pollution is this. And we use these sometimes extra biblical yet ethical questions to ostracize, to demonize, or to separate those who are real Christians from those that are fake, or if we're being generous, at least weak. And perhaps it's the way the church allows more tolerance on practices of materialism or lust or pride or gossip while struggling to show hospitality to those struggling with substance addictions those experiencing attractions that are not heteronormative, those who are neurodiverse, those of a different race or culture. Perhaps it's the way that the church has desired to hold up values around sexual purity, but has predominantly weaponized it against young women to cause bodily shame and distort an unbiblical view of sex. And out of a desire, purity, hear me, purity is a good thing. Jesus would say purity is a good thing. But out of a desire, we can become like the Pharisees in the story and try to be good and faithful followers of Jesus, but yet in turn utilize the scriptures to actually mistreat others or act one way and then do another thing that's not consistent. But guess what? We all do it. Because, hear me, sin has affected everyone in this room. Why is there murder? Why is there slander? Why is there lying? Because of all of our hearts across this whole world are defiled. We're under the effects of sin. And there is good news. Because the greatest accomplishment, I would argue, that the cross does for us is around the word atonement. And and atonement is centrally about sort of a cleansing, a cleansing work that Jesus did. A taking away defilement. It's, it's what is instructed from the priest in Leviticus all the way to the cross. For whatever reason in God's economy, he utilizes blood to do the cleansing work of what atonement is. To cleanse the very meeting spaces of heaven and earth, which was the tabernacle, which was the temple. And now Jesus says, it's you and me. Our inner selves, our hearts have been cleansed. 
And then you can sit there being like, but Chris, why do we still do all these things then? If, if our inner selves have been undefiled, why are we still like this? And I love how Paul actually speaks to this. Because in Christ, you're right. This is not who you are anymore. You have been clean. Your inner self is changed. But sin is still around. And Paul speaks to this in, in Romans 7. He says, so now it is no longer I who do it. He knows who he is now. That's not who he is. But he says, but it's sin that dwells in me. He goes on to say, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. And we see Paul wrestling with that. It's like my inner being has been changed. It delights in the law. The, the definition of me as sinner is just not quite the definition anymore. But I do still sin. God has created a new creation, a new inner being in each of us if we believe in Jesus. One that delights in the law of God. And yet sin is there too. It's right, right next to us. And Paul will go on to say these sentences. Just, just two sentences later, he says this. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. And so there's a beautiful invitation there. We are made clean by Jesus, but there's still sin, but, but that's what repentance is for. To go, here's what I am now. Here's what I'm doing. And, and those things are not lining up with what Jesus declares me to be and how I'm actually living. And so I need to, I need to repent. I need to refocus on what is true and what is right to return to what it is, to be renewed by the Spirit. One that shows me how I actually should treat others. That's almost the overflow. It's the fruit, the very emphasis of the good news of Jesus. It was the greatest commandments. Sermon on the Mount. Trusting in his cleansing and saving work. And so the Pharisees, in their emphasis on external rituals, often overlook the heart of the matter, how we treat others, but Jesus redirects the focus towards from outward cleanliness to the condition of our heart, highlighting the hypocrisy of neglecting the inner transformation. He emphasizes that true defilement comes from things like plotting evil and murder and adultery and what happens, matters of the heart, but also actions. We should see, if you try to make this uh, only internal, external, Jesus doesn't go there. He's like, you want to talk about defilement? Here's some actions that are defilement. <laughs> He doesn't go, it's only internal, but, but there's a connection there. And we must examine whether we prioritize certain tradition or values over the fundamental principles of love and mercy and justice. Jesus has already said twice in the Gospel of Matthew, I desire what? Mercy, not sacrifice. If you think this is all about what you're giving up for me, that's, that's, not, that's not the heart of what I'm after. I'm after mercy for my people. And the Pharisees lacked so much of it. So let us not be blind guides, clinging to traditions or rules or anything that miss the very heart of what God actually commands. But may our lives be characterized by genuine love for God and others. That we demonstrate an inner transformation that comes from a heart with faith, allegiance to King Jesus. So I'm going to invite Sarah up 
to, to walk us through just a chance to sit on, on some of this heaviness, some of these big ideas, and allow us to, to pray and let the Holy Spirit do a work on us.